Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We'll be in verses 2 through 13 this morning or page 12 of your worship guide. I said earlier that we had a bunch of extra musicians here, and I take that back. Uh, we had just the right amount of musicians. None of you were extra. You were all needed and wanted, and we are all very thankful that you have been here this morning. So Mark has kind of been our home base for a long time. Uh, we're going to take a break from it for the season of Thanksgiving and Advent and Christmas. Uh, and so we will pick the Gospel of Mark back up. But as I said, this next week, uh, next Sunday morning, uh, Paul Husband is going to be preaching to us. He's going to be kicking off our, our Thanksgiving sermon series. And again, if you don't have one of these that are in the back in that basket on that little round table by the door, grab one, this little devotion guide for the Thanksgiving series that we're doing in the Thanksgiving season. Um, Please grab one of those. And so that's what we're going to be doing uh, in the next few weeks. We are, the Duesenberry family is moving into a new home over the next couple weeks. And so uh, Paul is very gracious uh, to preach about the generous grace of God in his word next week to kind of give me some time to, to manage that move and all of that stuff. So there we go. Let's read from the Gospel of Mark chapter 9 starting in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And they were coming down the mountain. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things and how it is written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I imagine this is probably, I'm probably not the only one in this room that could count on one hand the number of like actual mountains you have climbed, right? Probably you could count on no hands the number of actual mountains you have climbed. And I'm talking about like named mountains, mountains that are big enough to have names. Um, And I'm not talking about like Mount Bucksnort, you know, the... (laughs) the tallest peak in West Tennessee or whatever, but like, but none of the ones that I've climbed are impressive, right? In fact, uh, most of them you can drive most of the way to the top. Um, one of them, Mount LeConte, literally has a lodge and a restaurant on top of it. So like, we're not talking about great feats of mountaineering here in my background. 
But there is one that I'm really actually kind of proud of, and that's Mount Phillips at the Philmont Scout Ranch in New Mexico. And all right, this is a Presbyterian church. Uh, I don't know why mountain climbing got the. Um, but it's a, it's a, and I climbed it not only because, like, I remember it not only because it's a, it was a decent sized mountain and it was a beautiful day and it's like 12,000 feet. Okay. But, but I did it, uh, in full packs, like from the base to the summit, like we were backpacking. So that was something I was also 15. So let's keep that in mind. Um, and the, I still have the trail map that I carried on that hike. Uh, in my desk drawer in the office back there. I found it not too long ago. But, but like, none of that's really why I remember it, although it, it kind of is. Uh, but the best part about climbing that mountain wasn't the feat itself, right? It wasn't the view. Uh, it wasn't the squeezed cheese that we had for lunch that day, although I definitely remember that. Um, but it was, it was Eric New, and it was Jeff Wolf. And it was our scoutmaster, Doc McKenzie. And it was those, those people that we were with on that day as we sat and enjoyed that squeezed cheese and enjoyed that beautiful view and enjoyed the feeling of that accomplishment as we, as we did that. And, and so if I carry that memory of that day climbing that mountain that was just sort of a mundane as you can get experience in the outdoor, although a wonderful experience, how much more do you think Peter and James and John carried with them the experience of climbing this mountain with the Lord Jesus on this day. After this difficult lesson that Jesus has been teaching them about the true nature of the Messiah's mission, that his suffering and his death and his resurrection and this hard to to fathom uh, teaching that you will have to carry your cross and follow me if you're going to be my disciples, Jesus is giving his closest friends this wonderful experience that he knows will strengthen them and inform them and help them for the rest of their lives. But not only them, us as well, the rest of the church as well, that Jesus, Jesus reinforces his teachings about suffering and, and death and resurrection But he does it by confirming for his disciples and for us that he is, in fact, the divine son of God. So let's look at this in three ways. Jesus is first the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus is the beloved son of God, but Jesus is also the shepherd of his people. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is the beloved son of God, and he is the shepherd of his people. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and prophets. It had been, it had been an exhausting climb of, up Mount Hermon. And that's the mountain, if that means anything to you, in northern Palestine, kind of north of the Sea of Galilee, that most scholars believe that's in question here. The text doesn't really specify which mountain, but that's the one that seems to make most sense to most scholars. And so it was, it was an exhausting climb, and the four friends had been perhaps quiet most of the way. Uh, as they as they put one foot in front of the other and and went around the switchbacks and made those that plodding climb up to the top of this mountain, in fact, where there is the only place in Israel where there's snow at certain times of the year, 
And they were on their way for a prayer retreat. Like this is kind of their purpose. Some of the other gospels give us that detail. And Jesus has, has often been confusing to them, but lately he had been even more so. Just this last week or so, talking about crosses and executions and suffering and death. And then, then there was all this talk about rising from the dead that, that no one really understands or understood. And, and, and perhaps they were thinking a, a time of way with just the four of them would just sort of iron out some of the wrinkles that had come into those relationships there and, and give an opportunity to, to ask and to answer some of the questions that they had. And, or perhaps they were hoping that, that they would just forget all about this dangerous talk about, about persecution and life and suffering and death and all of that. And they made the summit just as the sun was going down. And here's, how, here's one description of a sunset on Mount Hermon that I read this week. As the sun descended, a deep ruby flush came over all the scene, and warm purple shadows crept slowly on. The Sea of Galilee was lit up with a delicate greenish-yellow hue. The flush died out in a few minutes, and a pale steel-colored shade seceded. A long pyramidal shadow slid down to the eastern foot of Hermon and crept across the Great Plain. Damascus was swallowed up by it. It was the shadow of the mountain itself, stretching away for 70 miles across the plain. The most marvelous shadow perhaps to be seen anywhere. The sun underwent strange changes of the shape. Now almost square, now like a domed temple, until at length it slid into the sea and went out like a blue spark. Verse 2 says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before him, before them. And Luke and Matthew give us a few more details about what that actually means and what that actually, what actually happened and what they saw and experienced. And, and he says that his face was altered and it shone like the sun, that there is actually a radiant light that is, that is coming from the face of Jesus, that Jesus himself is the source of the light white radiance coming from him. In verse three, it says, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. There was this, this otherworldly, distinctly and unmistakably heavenly experience of seeing this man that they had known and had traveled with and sat with and ate with and been in boats with all of a sudden becomes this otherworldly being. He was metamorphosized right in front of them. In fact, the word translated transfigured is the same word that that we get our word metamorphosis. I think I got all the syllables. Um, It sounds like, and it almost sounds cheesy. Like it kind of does to say that it was like a butterfly. And there's a sense in which, you know, the butterfly is the true form of the creature, Right. Like the caterpillar is not the true form of the butterfly. It's just this temporary form. And Jesus' true nature, his true form is now like being revealed. It's coming out. And verse 4 gets even more amazing. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. 
Luke tells us what they were talking about. He gives us a little bit more info into their actual conversation and the content of it. Luke tells us they were talking to Jesus about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. These two men, Elijah and Moses, are here and together they represent the totality of redemptive history up until this point. Up until this point, we're talking about all of the accomplishments of God in redeeming a people for himself. Like that whole, all of that history is summed up in the persons of Moses and Elijah. Moses, who think about this too, up until this point had never set foot in the promised land. Moses died outside of the promised land in a place that nobody even knows where he is. And now here he is finally standing in the land that he led the Israelites up to the border to before he was prevented by God from going in. And and here he is and Moses represents all of the law, all of the Old Testament law and the system, not only the rules and regulations, the do's and don't do's that were listed there, but but the sacrificial system that existed in order to, to atone for the sins of the Israelites and the people of God when they didn't do the do's and did do the don't do's. Like that is what Moses represents. And then and then there's Elijah, who we last saw riding a chariot of fire, right? And he's back now. And, and Elijah represents the prophetic teaching about the Messiah and all of, all of the communication that God did to try to prepare his people and to point them to this promise and to tell them that they are not going to be left alone, but that a redeemer is coming, a Messiah is coming who will visit the people and walk among them and be one of them. And that's, that's Elijah. Jesus is there as the fulfillment of both, as the ultimate expression of both, as the perfect, the perfect law keeper, that he is going to keep the law perfectly, something which his people have never been able to do, that you and I have never been able to do, keep the commandments of God perfectly, and there is Jesus, and he's doing it. And he's going to perfectly fulfill every promise of God made to his people to the point to which the Apostle Paul can write in 2 Corinthians that, that in him, for all the promises of God, find their yes and amen. That, that, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. That, that Jesus' perfect fulfillment of all of the redemptive promises of God for his people is so complete and so wonderful that Paul says all we can do is glorify God and say amen. Let it be so. Let it be true. Jesus, to sum it all up, is the ultimate expression of grace in this moment. He's the fulfillment of the promises of God to undo the curse. He's the fulfillment of the promises of God to pursue his people. He's the fulfillment of the promises of God to save his people and to call the church out as a bride for his bridegroom. But not only that, he's the fulfillment of of the demands of God's perfect justice. That by grace, he not only fulfills the demands of the law, but he takes the penalty for our law breaking. He is not only the perfect Israelite, but he's the perfect sacrifice. 
He is both just and justifier of his people. And the first thing the disciples need to do on that mountain is to take all of that truth and expression of God's grace and goodness to his people and absorb it deep into their hearts. Put it deep into their soul. Take this experience into their pounding chest. And, and there, is, there is a time when silence is the only appropriate answer. And Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah just the chapter before received this wonderful confirmation and affirmation, but, but Peter can't not say something, right? And I love Mark's inclusion of that little detail because Peter was his primary source, remember? Mark's little inclusion because he didn't know what to say. So he said something and Peter said, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Like, Peter is still thinking what man thinks. And that was Jesus' rebuke to him earlier, remember? He said, Peter, you are not thinking like God thinks, that you are thinking like man thinks. You are thinking about me like man thinks. Earthly dwellings for heavenly beings? The presence of Peter and James and John is a gift of grace from Jesus to inject steel into their spines, into the spines of these men who will one day lead the church, who will be the nucleus of the church on earth. And as they see Jesus in this form, they, they see him they're not seeing him as the, the climax or the hero of the story. They're, they're seeing him and they're being revealed to him as, as the beloved son of God. That Jesus is the climax. He is the hero of the story of redemption. The story that Moses and Elijah sum up by their presence. Jesus is the very climax of that great drama that is unfolding in the world by God's design and plan. And here is the proof that Jesus stands before them uncovered, revealed in all of his glory and divinity. Mark's readers faced uncertain times and future in Rome. Remember, Mark is writing to Roman Christians, and they faced persecution, they faced uncertainty in the future, and, and we have faced uncertainty, right? Uncertainty in our present, uncertainty in our futures, and especially over the next couple of weeks as we look at an election season. But maybe, maybe the political state of things is far, what, far from what is, what is causing uncertainty in your life. There's a sense in which I, I sincerely hope it is, but whatever it is, whatever it is that is undermining the foundations that you stand upon and causing you to worry and doubt and fret, remember This is your Jesus. Let this knowledge of this experience that was had so long ago that is recounted for us in God's word, let that experience inject steel into your spines. 
Because we know that what we stand upon isn't ourselves, isn't our own efforts, isn't our own abilities, isn't our own talent, isn't our own desire to learn and grow, isn't our own uh, spiritual, like, on-fireness. But what we stand upon is this one who was uncovered as being the divine son of God. The culmination and the climax of not just redemptive history, but history. This is our king. Uncertainty will come and uncertainty will go, but this is your Jesus. This Jesus is the beloved son of God. I remember as a kid just kind of having this totally unreal expectation of what it would be like to fly in an airplane up into a cloud, right? As a, especially as a small kid, you kind of have this imaginary uh, imagination of what clouds are like and what it's like to kind of be up there among the clouds. And, you know, it has to do with like fluffiness and soft pillowy, you know, stuff. And you think about, oh, it would be nice to be able to like jump around and bounce around on the clouds, right? But like, then you get in an airplane and you realize, oh, like, it's fog. It's water. If you're that sophisticated, right? Verse 7 says, A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This isn't unique in the history of God's people, this cloud appearing. This cloud has several parallel appearances in the Old Testament where the cloud of God's glory accompanies his presence. And that's obviously that's what's happening here, right? So think about the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that led the Israelites out of Egypt and through the desert wanderings. Uh, which they could not approach in Exodus 13 or, or Moses wanting to see the, the, see God's glory. And God said, no, I can't, but I'll, I'll show you the backside of my glory. And he puts him in the cleft of the rock and Moses was prevented from, from having that direct contact with God's presence. Or when the cloud came down and filled the tabernacle, God's, with God's presence and Moses and the priest couldn't enter it. And then again, the same cloud filled Solomon's temple and the, and the priests couldn't enter it. And elsewhere in the Old Testament, like in Ezekiel, there's this, this cloud that, that comes down and, and represents God's presence. But it's unapproachable. Not even Moses has been able to go into the cloud of God's presence. Not only this, the same appearance of the glory cloud of the Lord called Shekinah, but here, Peter, James, and John are inside the cloud. (laughs) They're inside the cloud with Jesus. And Jesus' presence is what makes the difference. His presence is what means that Peter and James and John can endure the presence of God. Peter later on would write in 2 Peter chapter 1 about this experience. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. 
The voice Peter refers to is the same voice speaking almost the same words that it spoke at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. John records that after Jesus taught something particularly difficult, many disciples turned away from him, from following him. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, are you going to leave me too? And, And here's what John says. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This command, this is my beloved son, listen to him, had taken root in John's heart, had taken root in Peter's heart. And and Jesus, the beloved son of God, is our ultimate authority. Hebrews 1 says, long ago and in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us, how? By his son. He's our ultimate truth. John, 1 John 1 says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all of our sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's the ultimate source of life. John 7 On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's our ultimate rest. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your, take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is who the beloved son of God is for his people. Jesus is not only the fulfillment of all the scriptures, he is, he is also not only the beloved son of God, he is not only this, this shining one, this, this one who is unmistakably divine, but he is the shepherd of his people. Like, this is the one with all of his authority, with all of his truth, with all of his, his comfort giving and rest giving, he is the shepherd of his people. The disciples are terrified. Peter says something awkward. Jesus responds with silence. And then God speaks. And when the disciples look up, the special effects are over. And again, it's just them and Jesus. And the beautiful, but but pretty normal night sky Verse 9 and 10, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And they were coming down the mountain. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Even after all of this had happened, they still didn't get it. (laughs) That Jesus, who just revealed himself in all of his divine essence, continues to teach them, he continues to patiently deal with them, continues to, to walk with them, alongside them. He does this, why? Because it's Peter, because it's James, because it's John. And by extension, it's his church. He does this because these men are the nucleus of his people on earth. They are his church, they are his body, they are his bride. 
Jesus encourages his church with glory and with power. And he nourishes her with redemptive hope until the, the Son of Man rises again. Like he's, he's continuing to remind them that I'm going to suffer and die, but I'm also going to rise again. I'm going to rise from the dead. He does this so much so that, that Peter and James and John are confused. Like, what does that mean? He never, he never talks about the cross of Friday without also teaching about the empty tomb of Sunday. And then it says he goes with them down the mountain. This shining one full of divinity and glory goes with us. He doesn't stay on the mountain apart from his people. Remember God's walking with Abraham as we went through the life of Abraham not too long ago? Like the nearness of God to Abraham, the way God constantly moved towards Abraham in relationship. Here is Jesus constantly moving towards his people in relationship. He stays near to them. That we are embraced by this transfigured Christ who is the great shepherd of his church. As I said earlier, this is the Sunday that we typically observe Reformation Sunday and, and the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses and he said, here I stand and the Reformation happened and all of that. There are books about this. Because you, you kind of know, maybe you know, maybe you don't know. There's actually a really good movie about it too. Um, you know Martin Luther, right? But do you know who Martin Luther's shepherd was? He has a really fun name to say. Johann von Staupitz. He was the one who first preached the doctrines of grace to the young monk who was so terrified of God's judgment and sin that God used Staupitz to, cl- to calm the troubled heart of this man who, who literally saw the devil everywhere, including inside himself. And he shepherded Luther from a place where his confession was never enough or never complete because there was always one more sin to confess and he would confess for hours to a place where even Luther was able to rest in the finished work of Christ. So much so that Luther himself was very famous for saying that he was at the same time justified, meaning right before God, but still a sinner. God used Stoppitz to, to communicate that truth to Luther. Luther or Stoppitz sent Luther away to study the Bible and discover the gospel for himself. And, and it was at, he was at his side at the Diet of Worms where Luther uttered supposedly those famous words, here I stand, I can do no other. And it was Stoppitz who even absolved Luther of his priestly vows so he could pursue his reforms from outside the church. God cares about his church. He gives us shepherds. Let me ask you this. Who is shepherding your heart with the gospel? You need voices in your ear reminding you of what is true. I need your voice in my ear reminding me of the gospel. 
encouraging me when I'm discouraged, reminding me of the truth of who I am, but more importantly, who Jesus is and what he's done for me and his never failing love because my feet will stumble, my love will fail, my heart will go astray, I will go to the left when I should be going straight and narrow, right? And I need your voice, I need the voice of other godly men and women and shepherds in my life to remind me that I am beloved of the beloved Son of God. And I am valued by the one who was transfigured in glory on this mountain. And then even when there is uncertainty that comes from within me, there is no uncertainty with him. Because he is is the eternal king of the heavens. Who is shepherding your heart with that truth? Whose heart are you shepherding with that truth? Maybe you need to hear that truth and receive that truth for the first time. Maybe you need the gospel to penetrate your heart and to show you your need for a shepherd in the first place. If so, good news. (laughs) Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves his people. He doesn't leave her alone. And the gospel is about a close savior who fulfilled the law's demands, not only by keeping the law perfectly, by paying the penalty for the sins of my, paying the penalty that my law breaking demanded from a just and holy God. And he does this, fulfilling all the the promises of God for his people. And he offers himself, this transfigured one who appeared in glory, offers himself to you freely. Sometimes we just need to hear that again. That's why we do this every week. That's why we celebrate this table every week. while While we say, this is Christ's body broken for you and his blood shed for you. It's why we taste and smell and feel and experience the presence of God as it is laid out for us in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Because it's communicating to us again and again this great gospel truth that the God of the universe came down, lived as a man, perfectly fulfilling the law's demands and perfectly satisfying the penalty for our sins and then giving himself away for free to his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for your mercy and goodness to us. How thankful we are for your son, Jesus Christ, who who loves us so much and gives us so much of himself. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and grace that is found in him. Even as we approach this table this morning, help us to remember that this is freely given, that Jesus gladly gave his life for his people and shed his blood for his people. Lord, may that thought humble us this morning, even as we come to this table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.